You're listening to the Oil & Gas This Week podcast with Mark LaCour and Jake Corley. This is the show for busy oil pros who quickly want to keep their finger on the pulse of the industry. What is going on, guys? Welcome back to another episode of the Oil & Gas This Week podcast. You're listening to episode 190. What's going on, Mark? What's going on is you don't feel good, do you? I don't feel good. I don't sound good, but I still look good. So <laughs> That's a good one. <laughs> I'm here to do this. Yeah, so sorry, audience. We've been later than we normally are late just because Jake's been really sick and really under the weather. So we had to give him a little bit of time so his voice could come back and he could quit popping pills and actually talk through the news articles. Speaking of popping pills, Jake, you want to read the review that we got? <laughs> I don't know if that's the greatest segue. I don't know if we're saying that our reviewers are popping pills, but I mean, it's an honest review from Mary D99. They write, I've listened to the podcast quite a bit, and it's useful for oil and gas industry news. Sound quality is good, and there's a lot to like about the podcast. Unfortunately, here's where the bad part comes. Presenters have strong political views, which they repeat over and over again. According to the presenters, academics don't understand climate change and the public and the government have been misled by a big conspiracy. Presenters, of course, understand it much better. They even try to explain why the scientists were all wrong. Oil companies should stop giving in to public pressure and push back on all measures to reduce the use of fossil fuels. War in the Middle East is coming and it's going to be fantastic for the oil industry. America is an island of intelligence surrounded by idiots. In that case, he was referring to Canada and Mexico, but other comments show similar supremacy beliefs over Arabs, Europeans, and Californians. Jesus Christ. I'm an oil and gas professional, and I do believe there's a place for oil and gas industry in the future, but their eyes are closed. Their eyes closed approach to the changing world is astonishing. I don't know where to start. So first thing, Mary D99 from Australia, thank you for the review. Sincerely. We love all of our reviews, whether they're great or or they're not so great. The one thing I'm curious about, Jake, and, and I don't know the answer to this. So Mary, if you can let us know, when you say that we keep talking about politics over and over again, I'd like to know what you're talking about because I really, we really try hard to stay away from politics. Sometimes we have to bring politics in because our industry is a geopolitical industry. I am curious if she thinks that our strong political views are our views on climate change. Because if that is the point, Mary, you're the part of the problem. Climate change should never be a political conversation. <laughs> climate change should be a scientific conversation. But once again, I don't know if that's what she's talking about or not. The other stuff I don't get either. I mean, we, we talk about how we pull ahead in certain parts of the industry compared to other parts of the world and other parts of the world pull ahead of us. But you know, for our listeners out there, actually, I would like some people to, to give us a little bit of feedback. Do you think Jay and I, Jake and I are too political on the podcast? And do you think that we look down upon other countries? I don't, I don't personally, I don't look down on anybody, right? So if that comes across now, she did mention Californians. I will admit that I do make fun of the people in California and their energy policies because it's, it's funny, you know, but you know, I, I really think when you look at what Jake and I are doing, that we're the opposite of eyes closed approach. I think we're probably eyes wide open more than, than a lot of people out there, but actually audience, I'd love to hear your feedback on this because this is a very honest review and we appreciate it, Mary D99. You know, I think we're just very passionate about our industry and I think there's a certain things. And I, one thing that sticks out is to stop giving in public pressure and push back. And it's because public perception is it affects our industry more than we know, more than most people know. And it's one of those things that we have to convey to the public, all the good things about all the good things in our lives that fossil fuels and, and just the hydrocarbon abundance that we experience here in the United States and allows us to live a much better life, much cheaper, a better life than, than most of the entire world, right? And all that's in jeopardy due to ignorance and misspread of information or spread of misinformation, I should say. 
And, and so that, that's something that's dear to my heart. Now, in terms of other politics, like we don't really talk about any of the politics. And honestly, I'm not a super political person, but as it affects me in my personal life and, and this industry that I work in and live in and have for the greater part of the last decade, yeah, I'm very passionate about that. And so I'll never be apologetic for that. Yeah. You know, Jake, I'm glad you brought that up. So we just launched the Oil & Gas Offshore podcast from New Orleans from the uh, Workboat show last week. And I was actually somewhat taken aback, like like I was shocked out of, out of my you know, normal conference, the way I think about stuff, we had quite a few vendors at that conference did not want to go on the oil and gas offshore show because it was the oil and gas offshore show. And it's like, are you kidding me? This is a marine vessel conference. I mean, what runs your engines, you know? So, so you know, even me who, who thinks they have a good feel for the pulse of the public, even I was a little taken aback that this conference, that a lot of uh, the people there didn't want to come on the show because it had an oil and gas slant to the offshore segment. So, yeah, I, I'm right there with you. We, we need to we do need a pushback because we don't we haven't done it in a long time. But this is an interesting re- review. I really would like our audience to come back and, and let us know if you think Jake and I are too political. And if we are just real quick, tell us how. You know, because we want to try to always be unbiased. Speaking of unbiased and climate change, you know what I'm going to do, Jake? That? You don't even know this. So, you know, IBM's a sponsor of this show. And yep. I'm sure you're aware that IBM bought the Weather Channel years ago. I met one of their head climate scientists, a meteorologist. This guy's name is David Gold. Incredible guy. Super smart. Him and I disagree on climate change. So, you know what we're going to do? We're going to record an episode. I'm going to shoot video of it of him trying to convince me I'm wrong. And we're going to talk about just the facts. And I will tell you now, audience, that if he convinces me that I'm wrong about my views on climate change, that I will be the first one to admit it and I will admit that I'm wrong. So we'll see. It's good. It's going to be next year when that comes out. But that's going to be fun. And don't you know a lot of people are going to choose sides on that? And we're going to have a honest, scientific, factual conversation. No politics, no opinions, just the facts, just the data. So stay tuned for that. That's going to be fun. It reminds me of all the, the, the documentaries that come on Netflix. The one that's kind of top of mind is The Game Changers that was just released on Netflix. And I saw on my feed, on, on various social media outlets that you know friends were all of a sudden going to try to be vegan and this and that. But if, if you really stop and look and I'm, I'm obviously, and you are as well, you know, involved in the fitness community and stuff, but seeing all the scientists come out of the woodwork and saying, this is not accurate whatsoever. And then you look at the money that's funding the film and you see that it's by, com- it's by, it's by people who stand to benefit from you choosing a vegan lifestyle. Yeah, of course. They're making impossible burgers and pea protein and, and things like that. And, and it, honestly, a lot of studies, a lot of documentaries are the exact same way. And so, I just suggest everybody does their research and, and really, really dig into who's behind the research as well. So that, that's cool, Mark. I think that would be a really interesting piece of content. You know what's funny about that whole vegan thing? I read a, a study that was done by the University of Miami, and it was a bunch of graduate students. And they basically measured for two years the number of people that cheat on their diets when they're drunk. Like, you know, if, if you don't eat beef, but you drink and all of a sudden you want a hamburger and the number one group that cheated on their diet the most when they were drinking is vegans. <laughs> <laughs> hey, and if you're vegan, that's totally cool. Be yeah, a more vegan. power to you. I'm just not. So anyways, <laughs> we got off subject on this one, didn't we? All right. Let's, let's kind of reel it back in. It's probably all the medication I'm on. So we all know shale industry growth is slowing down. Analysts and experts can agree that American crude production or that the shale industry is slowing down. But one thing that we're not agreeing upon is that the EIA, the American crude oil production is going to rise by about a million barrels per day in 2020. And a lot of experts, including Scott Sheffield, CEO of Pioneer Natural Resources, as well as Mark Papa, who was the former CEO of EOG, now the CEO of Centennial Resource Development, both are saying 
that's just not accurate. You know, a lot of a lot of people are moving. Capital discipline is is top of mind. Free cash flow is top of mind. A lot of people believe that firms are having to move to more tier two, tier three acreage. Still doing a lot of parent-child well issues. And that the forecast that we're seeing from the EIA and from other agencies is just way too optimistic. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm going to totally agree with you on this. I, I think the the forecast is is it needs to be much more conservative. Is because because you and I are seeing this literally every day the slowdown in the shell fields, and it's and it's it hasn't picked up steam yet, right? We haven't picked up, we haven't hit the top of that bell curve yet. It is interesting to see when they readjust it. My nav system in my old car used to do this. Like it would guess how long it'd take me to get there. It'd be off by like 40%. And then when I was like a mile away, it'd readjust the time and get it right. Well, of course you can, when you get that close to the end, it's easy to get it right. I think that's what you can see the EI do. I think they're going to come back and they're going to readjust, which they do all the time. They're forecasting. I think you can see them tone this down a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. So this whole, I mean, the, the whole first three or four articles is really kind of just talking about the market today, talking about kind of the status of our industry here in the U.S., particularly shale. And so the next article kind of dives into, you know, who are some of the biggest losers of the U.S. shale bus? And I'm not going to say it's a complete bus, but I'll say this version of the shale revolution, quote unquote, is is definitely a bus. And we're, we're seeing kind of the rebirth of shale. We're hoping to see that over the next few years. And so a total of 32 oil and gas companies have filed for bankruptcy through the third quarter of this year, the total of bankruptcy since 2015 now clocking in at more than 200. Yeah, that's a lot of bankruptcies. That is a lot of bankruptcies. And so the article kind of dives into deep into who are some of the biggest losers? Chesapeake is widely being considered the poster child for the debt-fueled shale investments gone wrong, right? They recently put out a press release, I believe, last week that stated, if continued depressed prices persist combined with the scheduled reductions in the leverage ratio covenant. Our ability to comply with the leverage ratio covenant during the next 12 months will be adversely affected, which raises substantial doubt about our ability to continue as a going concern. Ergo, that means they're going to go under, right? And so they're completely trying to restructure a lot of their debt. It, there's a lot of things that are it's that they're waiting on to see if if people are going to reissue them any kind of debt. So most likely, we would expect to see Chesapeake. I expect to see Chesapeake going under in under probably the next two or three months. I haven't really done a deep analysis, but a lot of people on Twitter are. So feel free to go check that out. So just as a little history lesson. Chesapeake stock peaked at about $64 a share and they're currently sitting at about 60 cents. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's interesting to watch all this unfurl and you know, my views on this, that I think the, the large companies who come in and with, in between there, in between the fact that they don't need to borrow capital and the fact they own their minerals is going to change this. But the interesting thing to me is for the longest time, especially on land in the U S it was a flip model, right? So you would acquire mineral rights, you acquire acreage, you would go into production to, to prove the reservoirs there, and then you would hope somebody would buy that from you at a, at a profit. And that's been going on since forever. And now what I think's happened is you could come, we're coming back in and then actually in order to run a business, an exploration production business on land, it's always be a, the manufacturing metrics, right? Like cash flow, dividends, are you able to turn a profit? And that needs to happen. Unfortunately, Jake, you and I both know this, to go from where we are now to where that's going to be, if I'm right about moving toward that more manufacturing model, it's going to be a lot of angst, and a lot of pain. You have companies that could go out of business, you could have layoffs, but I sincerely believe that it's not going to be the busting of the bubble that a lot of people think it is. I think it's going to be a deflation of the bubble and then it will slowly fill back up again. Yeah, I think there's a, there's a lot of issues in the capital structure of oil and gas as we're seeing with with this this seemingly bust of 
shale. So this article kind of dives into the later, the later half of the article kind of dives into something that's kind of new. We'll kind of see how it plays out over time. Denver-based oil and gas company called Reza Energy has closed their first shale bond offering. So shale bonds are now a thing. So it allows companies to, they're floating asset-backed securities. Producers transfer ownership interest to the investors with proceeds from the wells used to pay off the bonds. So Reza is paying nearly 6% interest of the best quality wells with higher rates offered on riskier assets. That's an interesting approach. I, I, I want to keep eye on this. I don't know what bonds are going for. What are government bonds going for right now? It's like less than 3%, aren't they? Honestly, I'm not sure. Yeah. If I'm right about that, that's a pretty decent return for bonds, 6%. So I know the guys who actually worked on this over at Guggenheim. I know the guys who also invested in Reza. This is not a one-off thing. There's actually been a few other ones that are currently in the works or have already been completed. And so why... Our company is doing this. So let's kind of let's segue right into the next article. Are investors leaving oil and gas? And the answer is yes. I've talked about this probably in the past few episodes. If you are a private equity firm, if you're a Riverstone, if you're Apollo, if you're whoever, and you're going out to raise money, right? So from pension funds, endowment funds, family offices, whoever it may be, and you go to 10 people, seven doors shut automatically for ESG reasons. So what is ESG? It's environmental, social, and governance. It's, it mostly has, most likely has to do with just being associated with oil and gas. So seven doors were shut automatically. Two doors shut due to the fact that they've been burned by oil and gas over the last decade with, you know, shale has been overall money losing experiment. And then one of the 10 investors will talk to you because they're just a gambler and they want to try to make some money. Okay. So it's interesting with these shale bonds. What is this a better way for them to be able to fund their assets? And is it also, it seems like probably one of the best ways for investors to actually make a return on their money if you're playing in the public markets, right? So going back to what I said about investors leaving oil and gas altogether. Sorry, my voice is completely just going out on me. Norway's $1.1 trillion sovereign fund, which is the largest sovereign fund in the entire world, is planning to completely divest out of all oil and gas investments. And what's noteworthy about that, Jake, is that's where the money came from, right? So, so Norway's sovereign firm, which is basically like an investment savings account for the, the country of Norway, all that money came from the, the profits they made in the North Sea. And so for them to say that they're going to diverse, divest themselves from companies that are solely oil companies is a huge, huge thing. But if anybody would actually pull this off, it probably would be Norway, which is, is going to be, some people say it's hypocritical, but I think the people in Norway and the government in Norway are trying just to move on. Now, whether they pull it off or not, let's see. Yeah, absolutely. So it leads us to the next article. So if investors are dumping oil and gas, why would anybody buy Saudi Aramco? So Saudi Aramco, state oil monopoly, makes more money than any company on earth. They make more money than Apple, more money than Walmart, more money than Google. But with low oil prices and the climate crisis, quote unquote, and geopolitical risk and all the other things, you know, it's led Saudi, Saudi Ramco into, you know, partial privatization. So they have, they've, I don't know if they've fully closed their IPO as a quick little IPO update. Last time I checked, they raked in $28 billion, I think. $28 billion for 1.5% of their shares, which brought them to a $1.7 trillion valuation. That's crazy. But we've been talking about it for years. In fact, they were trying to get two, if I remember correctly. 
Yeah. So that was their target. Yeah, they were they were shooting. The range was one to two, but the crown prince was shooting for two. He's not going to get two, or at least it's not looking like he's going to get two. But one point seven trillion, you're still the world's largest company and most profitable and the world's most valuable company, right? So, Mark, if investors are dumping American oil and gas right in the public markets, they're not wanting to invest. Why is anyone buying into Saudi Aramco? I would think there's a whole bunch of reasons. One is it's not an American oil and gas company, so it's not regulated the same way. The other thing is, and you and I have talked about this before, you know, that the valuation of Saudi Aramco is linked at the hip to what's going on politically in Saudi Arabia. And so with that link there, the politics are, are a big major player in what that company is worth. And so you look at a monarchy by by default. As long as there's not revolution going on, it's less risky because the monarchy controls the politics, controls the government. Unlike here and a lot of the rest of the world where you have elections and, and you could have different politics come in, which, which then change the valuation of the oil and gas company. And they're also offering a $75 billion annual dividend through 2024. That's crazy. That's awesome. That's crazy. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it's kind of obvious. I think without the dividend, would they still invest? Mm. Who knows? Perhaps, but the thing is that it's it's really hard to see without if you if you take into consideration flat pricing, right? Let's just imagine that for the next twenty years, oil is sixty dollars a barrel. It's really hard to see how Saudi Aramco grows, right? I mean, as an investor, what do you want to see? You want to see growth. So it's I'm not really seeing what some of the other investors are seeing. Yeah, but you know, Jake. So so yes, absolutely. But Saudi Ramco is venturing into other things. For the longest time, Saudi Ramco was upstream company, right? They made their money securing crude and selling the global market. Now they're investing in refineries and pipelines and petrochemicals and ethylene crackers. So they're trying to diversify. Now the interesting thing to me is while all this is going on, at the same time, one of the things that the country of Saudi Arabia is doing is putting a lot of money and trying to boost tourism, which tells me they're trying to diversify their economy even more outside of hydrocarbons. I mean, I mean, when I say they're investing money, I mean, they're building man-made islands and you know some of the biggest indoor ski lifts in the world. It's in the middle of the desert. So you know, I think the country is, is div- trying to diverse, diversify their income, which I think is good. But I think Saudi, I mean, I don't think I know Saudi Aramco is also trying to diversify their revenue stream. They're trying to tap into the, the fatter margins on the manufacturer on the downstream side, specifically petrochemicals. And you've heard us talk about this before. You know, if you look at that globally, unless our politicians stick their finger in it, we've already won that race. But coming in second in a market that big, that will always have a demand is not a bad place to be. Yep. Apache just finished their Suriname. It was a massive offshore, supposed to be, I guess it was supposed to be a great exploration project, but they so far have not found any hydrocarbons, or at least they haven't said anything about it. And so shares in Apache have dipped 13%, hitting $19.36 per share, which is kind of surprising. I think they were kind of expecting to kind of follow in you know, Exxon's footsteps over there. Exxon has struck oil several times right across the border uh, over in Guyana with their stay broke discoveries. Yeah, Exxon usually knocks it out the park. They, they, they'll do stuff that everybody thinks is crazy, and all of a sudden they, they hit profitable oil. The bad thing for poor Apache is it's like the, the third or fourth <laughs> disappointing thing that's happened to them. You know, They slashed their upstream CapEx spending. They had an Alpine High discovery that failed to, to do anything because of low gas prices. They're still in a pretty good shape, but you know, they, they, need a, they need a couple of positives. They need a couple of you know, more at-bats. To, to, they need a couple wins. They need a couple wins. <laughs> 
yeah. <laughs> and I'm, you know, truth be told, I'm a um, Vester and Apache. I've always thought they've done a really good job at running their operations. But you know, let's let's give them a little bit of time. But this was not this was not good news for Apache's share price at all. Yeah, absolutely. Let's skip the next article. Honestly, after I read the whole thing, it's not really that great an article. Okay. So let's jump right into Russia's $400 billion pipeline project launched yesterday. So the presidents of Russia and China will today officially inaugurate the Power of Siberia natural gas pipeline that will eventually deliver 38 billion cubic meters annually to China with the full capacity to be reached sometime in 2025. Yeah, you know what bothers me about this? So Russia has a chokehold on Europe right now on natural gas, and now it looks like they're going to start penetrating the Asia-Pacific market through China. You know, I get it. If I was Russia, I'd, trust me, I'd be doing the exact same thing they're doing right now. They need a, a more market share. They need a more diversified market than just Europe. It will be interesting to see what happens as our LNG supply comes online more and more as more of our LNG plants come online as more and more of our export terminals get built. You know, can we effectively compete with Russia and Asia Pacific with our, our LNG? I think we can. You know, Chevron has that big Gorgon project in Australia that could put some awfully close to the Asia Pacific market. We would think it was the largest project Chevron's ever done in its history. We have a whole bunch of LNG projects right here in our Gulf Coast. I would like to see us in Russia battle it out for, for global market share for LNG. But China's a big market. But the cool thing about this from a Chinese point of view is, you know, Jake, I don't know if you've been to China in the last 10 years or so, but pollution over there is so bad, you literally can't breathe sometimes. And so what's happening is their electricity is being generated for the most part by coal, and they're trying to get away from that. So this is actually good for the people of China getting away from coal for electrical generation and actually moving over to, to natural gas. I'm just hoping we can grab some of that market share from Russia. And, and, and I'm, I'm pretty sure we will. It's just Russia's going to beat us there with the pipeline. But once we get our LNG export fully up to speed, I think we'll be taking some 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 of this market from them. Yeah, absolutely. Let's go ahead and skip the next article and come back to it because the one after that is China is set to launch the 100 billion dollar oil and gas pipeline firm. So this is part of the major restructuring. It's the biggest pipeline plan since energy reform and China had since 1998. Yeah, it's interesting that you can have a state-run pipeline infrastructure. There's, you know, they have literally no pipeline infrastructure to, to begin with right now anyway. They need this and they need to do this so they can effectively and cheaply move natural gas around the country. It's part of what they need to grow. You know, by 2050, most of China's population is expected to be living in cities like the rest of the world, not in the rural agrarian lifestyle. So they need natural gas not only to provide electricity, but also heat homes, heat water, and then also to, to manufacture, you know, things like plastic. So they can't do that unless they can move natural gas around the country effectively. And that's literally what this is, is them doing building infrastructure. I am slightly jealous being an American in that they're going to have a brand new modern pipeline infrastructure. And we have some of that, but we have some pipelines that are 100 years old. You know, it must be kind of cool to actually have it something new and modern and, you know, controlled by, you know, software and, and you know, really corrosion resistant, all that sort of stuff. But this is good, good for the country of China. Now, back to our other article, when they help build this infrastructure, it's going to allow natural gas exporters, whether that's Russia uh, delivered via pipeline, U.S. delivered in uh, LNG cargo ships to actually penetrate more of, of the interior of China because the infrastructure is there. Without the infrastructure, you can't move natural gas around. So, you know, long term wise, this is good for China and good for us and probably good for Russia too, as much as I hate to say it. Iran is saying that they will not agree to any production cuts in the future, even after the sanctions are removed. So that's one article I actually didn't include in here is that OPEC has agreed to another 500,000 500, 500, barrel production cut, I think by 
was either March or May of next year or through March or May of next year. But Iran's saying, not us. You know, my, one of my predictions is we're going to have an outbreak of hostilities in the Middle East, and this is just fanning the fire. You know, what happens, and, and our audience knows this, but the power of OPEC is the power of the cartel, right? When they decide to cut or when they decide to up production, it controls global oil and gas prices or really crude oil prices, I really should say. And when you have parts of OPEC that don't listen to that, then the power of the cartel is diminished. And this is a perfect example of what's going on. On top of everything else going on in Iran, they pull something like this. Now, the truth is they've lied for, for decades about how much they're producing. And Saudi Arabia, who's the primary member of OPEC, knows they don't tell the truth. And what Saudi Arabia has been doing for a very long time is figuring out if they're overproducing, and then Saudi Arabia will cut its production so the final number is what OPEC wants. And Saudi Arabia is not going to be doing that much more, if, if at all. So this is not going to go good for to have a rogue member of OPEC. But But, you know, let's see what happens. All right, let's move away from the uh, geopolitical stuff. Talk about technology for a few minutes. When gas slow to adopt cost-saving artificial intelligence. Talk about this a lot, right? There's been a lot of buzzwords. There's machine learning, there's deep learning, there's human learning, there's computer learning. All of those are subsets, typically, except for the human learning, of artificial intelligence. Or artificial intelligence, I guess, is more of a subset of that. Yeah, the adoption is a little bit slow. And that's what kind of this article dives into. You know, there are millions and millions of data points that companies, OFS companies and operators are collecting every single day. You know, and so AI is essentially just a series of algorithms that is built to recognize patterns and learns from the patterns and then provides useful predictions or insights based on probability. A lot of things that machines can do better than humans, and this is one of them. doesn't mean that you necessarily want to do one or the other exclusively, but usually you work a lot better together. We typically just have, and this is not in all cases, but for the most part, a lot of data in oil and gas is bad. It's just bad, dirty data. I would say a good majority of it. But for those times when you're you're able to capture information, say directly from the wellhead or from wherever it is, from the point of inception, there's a lot of great things that you know, machine learning, artificial intelligence could offer your organization. Yeah, so it's interesting. So before, before we turn the microphone on, we're actually talking about IBM, who's a sponsor of this show. Big shout out to them. Great people doing great stuff out there. And even internally in the tech companies, they're not always on the same page. And to get an industry like ours who does not like new stuff to adopt stuff new, you have to have your A game on, right? You have to have not only just proof of concepts, you have to have real rubber hit the road executable stuff, not just academia. You also have to have a strong financial case built for, for the adoptation of new technology. And as far as I've seen, it's all there. Right. And it's not just IBM. It's, it's all the major tech players out there. And a lot of the small startups are doing the same thing. It makes a whole lot of sense for our industry to adopt things like artificial technology way faster than it's doing now. I think a part of it is, is culture. I think part of it's also generational. I think as this new younger workforce, which I keep saying new younger workforce, you know, Jake, your generation now is mid-level management in, in oil and gas. You know, so as as that millennial generation starts stepping into upper management, executive management, I think you see the the pace of this adoption speed up. At least I hope it does. Now I will say this much. I've been in this industry 25 years. I've probably seen the speed of new technology adoption in the last three years is way faster than it's been in the last 20, 
22 before that. So we, we have sped it up, but it's just, it's just slow. And, you know, we keep talking about what's happened in the shell fields. We have to drive efficiencies. And the number one way to drive efficiencies is with technology. And I do get it, right? I do the tech, get it that the technology is not always the best solution. Sometimes the old fashioned, what it was in place before is the best solution. But like Jake said, there's so much stuff, so much efficiencies and so much learning that the machine can do that we as humans simply cannot do because you cannot crunch that amount of data. You know, humans aren't wired to do that. So, so, you know, it's, it's happening. It's just not happening fast enough. And I think it's, it, it's, I think the companies that are to be higher on that adoption curve are going to pull way ahead of the ones that are on the lower end of that adoption curve. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right, guys, it wraps up the stories for this week. Sorry, my voice is terrible. Sorry, I'm on so many medications. <laughs> we will try better. I will try to get better by the next episode. So Mark, we still doing the giveaways? Hell yeah. We're just still doing giveaways. You want to win one of these really, really cool shirts with the unique serial numbers. I think big shout out to IBM. It's really simple. Go to IBM hyphen OGTW. The link's in the show notes. You see the scroll left or up, depending if you're iOS or, or Android. These shirts are cut for men and women. We spent some money on these. They've become quite the collector's item. Actually, the last live event we did, the live event we did two times ago, actually had somebody show up in their shirt. and the, But the last one, somebody took a picture of it because they didn't want to wear it because they think it's going to be worth a lot of money. So they didn't want to wear it. So they show me the picture of the shirt they want. And then starting in the new year, we're going to start giving away some really cool stuff based on those numbers. So if you have one of these shirts, the number is at the bottom of the print of the pump jack. It's not on the sleeve. What is on the sleeve is our logo, OGG, and IBM's logo on the other sleeve. So go register, win one of these. And by the way, people, if you don't win, you can register every week. Don't just register once. Register every week. Get you one of these shirts. Speaking of getting one of these shirts, I'm scared to even ask this number, Jake. What's the weekly rig count doing? 840. Yep. Up 3% from last week. Yep. So about where I thought it would be. Street Team, if you want to be a part of our member volunteer group of member Street Team people, join the Facebook group. Literally, you're just helping us with our social media. We ask you to help share some of our stuff. If you're local to any of the live events that we do, you get to come free to our live events. And if we're going to any conferences or expos in your neighborhood, you get to come with us as part of our press team. But you can't do that unless we know you're there. And then we got some really cool shirts that can be coming out very end of January for our street team members. So if you want one of these cool shirts, join the street team just to get a cool shirt. And then speaking of joining stuff to get cool things, monthly email list that we do completely free. If you'd like to know about all the oil and gas events that are going on, plus the ones that are private, go sign up for it. The links are in the show notes. And then speaking of links in the show notes and free stuff, if you like coffee and who does not like coffee, our travel partner of choice, BCD Travel, is giving away free coffee. You don't have to register for it. You don't have to win it. They just give it to you because they like you because you listen to the show. So that link's in the show notes as well. They're our travel provider of choice, making our oil and gas traveling life so much easier. Then if you want Jake and I to come speak, and we got, I don't know, half a dozen speaking gigs, I think, for next year already. But let us know whether it's your young professionals group, whether it's your sales and marketing kickoff. You know, Jake and I would be happy to come out. We'd be happy to share the details. We'll have a great time. We can even bring a podcast or two if you'd like us to. And then First Friday Q&A, that's where you ask questions to help educate the audience. Please note the goal is not to stump Jake and I. Really simple. Go to the website, allandgasthisweek.com. Click on Ask a Question. If we use your question on the air, you will get a big shout out and since you're out there go ahead and give us your email address we promise not to spam you the last event where i interviewed the head of artificial intelligence exxon mobile live from the astros locker which i still can't believe i did that the first group that found out i was doing that were the people that signed up for the email list for this show so if you want to hear about more cool stuff like that go sign up like i said promise never spam you all right jake i know you're not feeling good so you ready to get out of here let's do it all right folks remember do great work pay it forward and we will see you next time and here are the events on deck hey guys alex here with the events on deck for december 
We'll be having two OGGN happy hours to kick off 2020. One will be in January in Houston. We have not announced the date yet, but we'll get back with you guys soon on that. And we will be having our first happy hour in Pittsburgh in February 2020, also with the date coming soon. So stay tuned on those. Upcoming events include the Bells of Houston, a masquerade, unmasking the stigma of PTSD. This will take place on December 5th in Houston. The Latin America Oil and Gas Summit is December 5th and 6th in Uruguay. The API Energy Houston Chapter General Meeting will be held on December 11th, 2019 in Houston. The Wildcatters Ball is taking place on February 7th, 2020 in Houston. And lastly, the IPAA Leaders Industry Luncheon will be held on December 11th in Houston. That's all of the events for this month, guys. Be sure to tune in at the beginning of January to see what's happening then. Tune in next week for another informative and entertaining episode of Oil & Gas This Week podcast, a product of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at oilandgasthisweek.com.